Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Um, right now, uh, attempting to simulcast onto my Justin TV channel, Zeitgeist TV, as well as onto Bold Voices TV. Uh, you can check that out there. Um, anyway, I'm going to ask my uh, listeners if the sound is working good. Um, it may take a moment for the loader to, to go over in that other direction, but we'll see. Um, and then after we get all that, yeah, give it a second. But, uh, anyway, um, right now, because of the fact I have to wait for the blog talk loader to load on the, uh, computer that I'm using to broadcast onto Justin TV, this may take just a moment. So give me a second to get that kink worked out. I'll be right back. In the meantime, uh, if uh, Chibi and Thunder, my panelists, would like to introduce themselves, feel free. Go ahead, Chibi. Uh, hi, this is Chibi from St. Louis, Missouri, um, part of the Zeitgeist Movement. Okay. <laughs> well, this is Thunder, uh, another Blog Talk Radio host, and uh, I live out here in uh, just north of Southern California, so it's not really central, but anyway, on the beautiful central coast, they call it, and uh, I guess we're waiting for V to get his situation worked out, so pardon the silence, but uh, we'll be back here in just a second. All right, should be working now. Yeah, people are commenting that it is, so. All right, guys. Okay, I'm on live. All right, uh, today we're going to be reading from the book. Uh, it's actually General Smedley Butler's book, uh, the one that's mentioned in the Zeitgeist Orientation presentation. It's also mentioned in Addicted to War, or more specifically, some of the words from it are uh, the book that we read uh, in my last episode. Um, I want to bring up some uh, heads-ups to people. Um, I have now switched to a regular schedule. Uh, my shows will be Monday through Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, I will only be doing one-hour shows at a time, but you'll be getting more shows overall. Uh, in addition to that, uh, we have just launched vradio.org. It's a very primitive, simple website, but it has all the information you might need if you ever want to go and donate to you know, vradio. Uh, it also has uh, links to other shows that are uh, Venus Project related, including Thunder Show. Um, and, uh, and it also has a, a link to the uh, quick, basically the quick archive post that I had put in the Venus Project section of the Zeitgeist forums. Uh, so anyway, uh, there's a few changes going on around here. I'll still be offering, obviously, the same programming. Um, I'm also working towards getting some guests. Uh, we're going to be working on doing that now. Um, <laughs> it's a... Uh, it's not something from Smedley Butler, just to comment to somebody in the chat. It's uh, more specifically uh, the book called War is a Racket. Um, yes, uh, in fact, um, to once again comment to the chat, Smedley Butler was, in fact, a multiple Medal of Honor recipient. Um, in fact, I believe I have some information on him here. So let's bring this up and take a look at it. Okay, General Smedley Butler was born in Westchester, Pennsylvania, July 30th, 1881. Uh, he was educated at Harford School, married to Ethel C. Peters of Philadelphia on June 30th, 1905, awarded two Congressional Medals of Honor. Uh, the first one is Capture of Veracruz, Mexico in 1914, and the second one was a Capture of Fort Riviera, Haiti. Um, Distinguished Service Medal in 1919, Major General United States Marine Corps, retired October 1st, 1931, um, and then on leave of absence to act as Director of Department of Safety in Philadelphia in 1932, who was a lecturer in the 1930s, uh, a Republican candidate for the Senate, 
1932, um, died at the Naval Hospital in Philadelphia, June 21st, 1940. Um, now, basically, General Smedley Butler uh, was, in fact, a decorated war veteran who uh, had done a lot of campaigns for various corporate interests back in the day. And I would say that um, one of the major contributions that he made is that um, he basically eventually just kind of got sick of what it is that he was doing, and he turned around and wrote this book and became an activist against war. Uh, if you remember Addicted to War, uh, the, movie, or the book that we had read earlier, um, Addicted to War quoted a lot of the various things that, you know, campaigns that he was sent on, um, and he talked about how it was always for corporate interests of one way or another, that basically the military was a tool for corporate interests. And um, I'm actually glad I found this book. I found it, oddly enough, on PDF. It's a very old book, and I will make that PDF link available in a little while here. Um, but uh, it actually, oddly enough, it starts off in Chapter 1 with uh, War is a Racket, which is exactly the quote from the Zeitgeist Orientation presentation that is the reason that I looked up this book in the first place. Um, occasionally you may hear sounds from my children. I still broadcast out of my living room so that I can watch them while I'm doing things. My wife's supposed to be giving me a hand with that, but bear with me. Um, once again, I'm going to bring up uh, the Resource-Based Economy Caucus and the Boston Tea Party was formed recently, and we uh, could still use membership from the Zeitgeist Movement for the purpose of using this caucus as an, you know, essentially a sounding board to spread our ideas and make people aware of the solution of a resource-based economy. Uh, you can join that party at bostontea.us. That's Boston, like the place, tea, like the drink, .us. It doesn't cost anything to join. The platform is very simple. It basically is just about reducing the size, scope, and power of government on all levels. And um, so that's uh, the basics on that issue. Make sure you visit vradio.org, uh, v-radio.org, like v-sign-radio.org. Um, and uh, you can um, obviously use that link if you need to spread any information. But uh, without further ado, I'm going to take one super quick gander at the chat rooms and make sure everything's going. Looks like it is. And... Um, Let me see. I can see that uh, we've actually got enough people there, but all right, cool. Anyway, so now we're going to move on to Chapter 1, War is a Racket. War is a racket. It always has been. It is possibly the oldest, easily the most profitable, surely the most vicious. It is the only one international in scope. It is the only one in which the profits are reckoned in dollars and in the losses and lives. A racket is best described, I believe, as something that is not what it seems to the majority of the people. Only a small inside group knows what it is about. It is conducted for the benefit of the very few at the expense of the very many. Out of war, a few people make huge fortunes. In the World War I, a mere handful garnered the profits of the conflict. You know, they had to put one in parentheses, because when this book was written, there had only been one world war. Um, a mere handful garnered the profits of the conflict. At least 21,000 new millionaires and billionaires were made in the United States during the world war. That many admitted their huge blood gains and their income tax returns. How many other war millionaires falsified their tax returns, no one knows. How many of these war millionaires shouldered a rifle? How many of them dug a trench? How many of them knew what it meant to go hungry in a rat-infested dugout? How many of them spent sleepless, frightened nights ducking shells and shrapnel and machine gun bullets? How many of them parried a bayonet thrust of an enemy? How many of them we were wounded or killed in battle? Out of war, nations acquire additional territory. If they are victorious, they just take it. This newly acquired territory promptly is exploited by the few, the self-same few who wrung dollars out of the blood in the war. The general public shoulders the bill. And what is the bill? This bill renders a horrible accounting, newly placed gravestones, mangled bodies, shattered minds, broken hearts and homes, economic instability, depression and all its attendant miseries, backbreaking taxation for generations and generations. 
For many, many years, I'm sorry, a great many years as a soldier, I had a suspicion that war was a racket, not until I retired to civil life that I fully realized it. Now that I see the international war clouds gathering as they are today, I must face it and speak out. Again, they are choosing sides. France and Russia met and agreed to stand side by side. Italy and Austria hurried to make a similar agreement. Poland and Germany cast sheep's eyes at each other, forgetting for the, uh, for the nonce, one unique occasion, their dispute over the Polish corridor. The assassination of King Alexander of Yugoslavia, i.e. Yugoslavia, complicated matters. Yugoslavia and Hungary, long bitter enemies, were almost at each other's throats. Italy was ready to jump in, but France was waiting. So was Czechoslovakia. All of them are looking ahead to war. Not the people, not those who fight and pray and die, only those who, f who ferment wars and remain safely at home to profit. There are 40,000 men under arms in the world today, and our statesmen and diplomats have the temerity to say that war is not in the making. Hell's bells. Are these 40,000 men being trained to be dancers? Not in, not in Italy, to be sure. Premier Mussolini knows what they are being trained for. He at least is frank enough to speak out. Only the other day, Il Duce in International Consolation, the publication of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace said, quote, and above all, fascism, the more it considers and observes the future and the development of humanity, quite apart from political considerations of the movement, believes neither in the possibility nor the utility of perpetual peace. War alone brings up to its highest tension all human energy and puts the stamp of nobility upon the people who have the courage to meet it. End quote. Undoubtedly, Mussolini means exactly what he says. His well-trained army, his great fleet of planes, and even his navy are ready for war, anxious for it, apparently. His recent stand at the side of Hungary and the latter's dispute with Yugoslavia showed that, and the hurried mobilization of his troops on the Austrian border after the assassination of Dolphus showed it, too. There are others in Europe, too, who saber-rattling presages war sooner or later. Herr Hitler, with his rearming re Germany and his constant demands for more and more arms, is an equal, if not a greater, menace to peace. France only recently increased the term of military service for its youth for a year to 18 months. Yes, all over, nations are camping in their arms. The mad dogs of Europe are on the loose. In the Orient, the maneuvering is more adroit. Back in 1904, when Russia and Japan fought, we kicked out our old friends, the Russians, and backed Japan. Then our very generous international bankers were financing Japan. Now the trend is to poison us against the Japanese. What does the open-door policy to China mean to us? Our trade with China is about 90, it's like a million a year, or the Philippine Islands. We have spent about 600 million in the Philippines in 35 years, and we, our banks, reels, and speculators, have private investments there of at least 200 million. Remember, of course, this is a long time ago, so it was a lot more money. Then to save that China a trade of about 90 million, or protect these private investments of less than 200,000 million in the Philippines, we would be all stirred up, at, up to hate Japan and go to war a war that might well cost us tens of billions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of lives of Americans, and many more hundreds of thousands of physically maimed and mentally imbalanced men. Of course, for this loss, there would be a compensating profit. Fortunes would be made. Millions and billions of dollars would be piled up by a few munitions makers, bankers, shipbuilders, manufacturers, meat packers, speculators. They would fare well. Yes, they are getting ready for another war. Why shouldn't they? It pays high dividends. But what does it profit the men who are killed? What does it profit their mothers and sisters, their wives and their sweethearts? What does it profit their children? What does it profit anyone except the very few to whom war means huge profits? Yes, and what does it profit to the nation? Take our own case. Until 1898, we didn't own a bit of territory outside the mainland of North America. At that time, our national debt was a little more than, looks like one I want to say one billion, sorry, these are really large numbers. Then we became internationally minded. We forgot or shunted aside the advice of the father of our country. We forgot George Washington's warning about entangling alliances. We went to war. We acquired outside territory. At the end of the World War period, as a direct result of our fiddling in international affairs, 
our national debt had jumped to over 25 million, I think it's either 25 million or billion. Our total favorable trade balances during the 25-year period was about 24 billion. Therefore, on a purely bit-keeping basis, we ran a little behind for a year, and that foreign trade might well have been ours without the wars. It would have been far cheaper, not to say safer, for the average American who pays the bills to stay out of foreign entanglements. For a very few, this racket, like bootlegging and other underworld rackets, brings fancy profits, but the cost of operations is always transferred to the people who do not profit. All right, that's the end of Chapter 1, so I'm going to bring on my panelists, uh, Thunder and Chibi. Let's start with you, Chibi. Did you have any comments about this first chapter? Um, not really, just basically soaking in that information. Um, only if somebody disagreed. What about you, Thunder? Yeah, well, I actually was going to ask a question, but I think it got answered uh, maybe a little vague, but... The first question that popped in my head was, I wonder when he actually had this epiphany. Um, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty, so it sounds like, you know, it kind of was after the fact, after he went into the, you know, civilian lifestyle, that he had this, um, you know, epiphany that he did. I think it's great, and uh, um, it would be nice if uh, some of today's uh, generals, if you will, would... would uh, have that same epiphany and follow suit perhaps a little sooner than uh, Mr. Smedley did. Well, you know, I think one of the other really telling things about this is that if you think about it, all the stuff that he is saying is stuff that um, is being said right now about other wars. And we're talking about a guy who's basically getting ready to predict World War II, because that, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about Mussolini and Adolf Hitler. I mean, right. before it's even happened, he already knows. Um, and in addition to that, he's talking about how obviously people are profiting. He hasn't gotten any of the details there, but, you know, essentially what you're dealing with is that this has been going on for a very long time. That's one of the things that Addicted to War proved that a lot of other, that a lot of other publications talked about. A lot of people think that things like Iraq and Afghanistan, if they haven't really been studying it the way you guys study it and the way I study it, they don't know about the fact that this has really been the trend from the beginning. It really has. And uh, basically, um, you know, it, to, we have to look at the fact that, you know, obviously, if this has been the trend, who is enforcing this trend? You know, uh, who is essentially making these people continue to do this? You know, uh, who's, you know, where is that coming from? So right. Yeah, that, who's pulling? Yeah, who's pulling the strings on it? Because there's somebody pulling the strings. I mean, uh, for one man to come out with a, you know, with a all of a sudden, like I say, this epiphany, this this uh, conscience. Uh, you know, where are all the other men of conscience in 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 these higher levels that aren't aren't realizing what's going on? I mean, maybe they are, and they're just, you know, they still want to get their paycheck. I guess I, I don't know. It's 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 kind of frustrating, actually, for me. When anyway. you consider that it's the same the same racket, you know, it, it, right. it's been the same since the Indian War, like when we were reading Addicted to War. And they're talking about all these congressmen coming forward and saying things that are blatantly racist on the, you know, on the House floor, you know, in the congressional record about things like it's the destiny of the white race and stuff like that. You know, there's always some reason or another. Right. Yeah, I guess liberty and freedom is just constantly under attack. <laughs> well, yeah, and then let's not forget that you're always being convinced that that's what you're fighting for is liberty and freedom. You know, you're being convinced that that's what it's all about. You know, we need to go do this here. Or, and if it's not our own liberty and freedom, then, of course, it's somebody else's liberty and freedom that's at stake. So that's why we need to, you know, be going further with that. And I think that that's one of the major issues that I think people really need to wake up to is that it's not like this is some recent vague thing. It's just like uh, Peter said in the first Zeitgeist movie, that if the first, uh, like, for example, if the Gulf War was the first major war that wasn't started by false flag terrorism, it would probably be the exception. Um, another decent documentary by Alex Jones, and you know I very begrudgingly ever bring up Alex Jones, but uh, Terror Storm was a pretty decent documentary um, about false flag terrorism. And before he even got into the current you know, theories about false flag terrorism, he went over all of the stuff that's been declassified and is admitted to. 
you know, uh, like the, the various things that if it wasn't false flag terrorism, it was just the various ways that we manipulate things to create wars where we will fabricate reasons to go to war. Like he, you know, the Gulf of Tonkin ex, you know, incident is not even, you know, is now accepted as being BS. You know, it's, and I don't mean bad science. You know, it, it, it's, right. you know, it's basically known. Yeah, this was crap. We made it up. You know, um, the, they talked about the, the Mossadegh thing with uh, sending the CIA into Iran to remove Mossadegh, you know, and that's declassified. It, it's not even a question anymore. It happened, you know. Um, and that's why it, it's not really that unreasonable to me to see that, you know, and whether you're a 9-11 truther or not, it's obvious that, you know, if, that's, if, you know, if 9-11 was not created so that people could go to war, it wouldn't change the fact that obviously it's an extremely poor excuse to go to war with a country like Iraq that didn't have anything to do with it. I agree. So, and anyway, um, so, uh, Chibi, did you have anything else to say about this chapter? Uh, not in particular, although I was thinking about what you just said, and I would agree that you don't have to be a 9-11 truther at all to even, given even the uh, official story, there's still enough quirks in it to say, well, if, you know, if this wasn't an inside job, which I wouldn't say it is or isn't, but you could at least say, obviously, it was allowed to happen on, at, at multiple levels. Well, you know, another way to contemplate that is that it could also be an inside job in the same way that Pearl Harbor was. It's not that Americans were involved in Pearl Harbor. It's that key people, you know, who had the information ahead of time ignored it. Um, and then all of a sudden we're in World War II. And, right. you know, that's, that's, that could be an example of it, too. And that's the, basically, like, for example, when Congressman Ron Paul ca calls for a uh, reinvestigation of 9-11, he doesn't believe it was an inside job. He believes somebody screwed up somewhere and is trying to cover their butt. You know, there, there's plenty of information about that we can go into in a different show. But you get my point. It's just that regardless, it would certainly be extremely convenient that, it, you know, that, as was pointed out in Zeitgeist Addendum, which doesn't really go into 9-11 truth, it does point out that the war plans for invading Afghanistan were on George Bush's desk three days before he had an excuse to go, which was 9-11. Right. You know, um, and then talking about how the, the opium trade increased after, you know, they took it back and all sorts of stuff. So, But um, anyway, um, let's move on to the next chapter. Um, let's see if, like, I think my blog talk chat room may have shut down. I will take a look at it real quick and see if it's there. Oh, it disconnected me. But anyway, um, yeah, this is a really good book, and I know that it's hard for people to really think about it, but the issue to think about while you're reading this is that, you know, is that we are dealing with a guy um, who... Uh, Oh, actually, you know what? Somebody just brought something up interesting in the blog talk chat room. I'm glad I turned it on. But uh, when there isn't enough food, people compete to survive. The Germans attacked out of a depression. That the whole purpose of World War II for the Germans was to try to find a way to seize resources. You know, their motivation entirely was to try to get themselves out of the economic depression they were in. Um, right. And that's a very good point. I know Chibi's keying up. What is it? <laughs> oh, well, I was just thinking, I, I think we somewhat discussed this a week or two ago, but um, definitely had that discussion on the way to Venus about how World War One was really the direct cause of World War Two, and because of the Treaty of Versailles and the, the land that they had taken from them and the, anything they produced had to be given out to other countries to pay off debts. And it was like, it didn't matter, you know, how much work they did, they, they could have never got out of that depression. And of course, after World War II, that was somewhat changed, but it, it took another world war to fix the problems from World War I. So. Right. You know, and remember, of course, you know, that that's another example of people's, uh, you know, environment creating them, you know, because, you know, if I lived in the environment of Germany, you know, it wouldn't, you know, I can understand where these people are coming from. I still don't justify it. I don't condone it, but at least it becomes clear why these people were, you know, so prone to be angry. It was so easy to get them angry, you know, to, and to find a scapegoat and want to, you know, kill that scapegoat. That's, I think that's largely it, is that essentially the, the governments that were involved in the Treaty of Versailles and all that basically created the monster that was Hitler. Um, and, you know, some people believe they did it on purpose. So, yeah, if it wouldn't have been Hitler, it would have been somebody else. It, it's not the person. They were 
looking for someone strong to come up and say, no, we're not going to deal with this anymore. And I mean, did he go about it the right way? Of course not. But it's definitely part of environment that created all of that. Yep, I agree. Um, anything further, Thunder, before we go on? No, go ahead and, and read on. Okay. All right, moving on to Chapter 2 of the book by General Smedley Butler, War is a Racket. Chapter 2, Who Makes the Profits? The World War, rather our brief participation in it, this is once again talking about World War I, has cost the United States some 52... Man, that's a lot of zeros. <laughs> I'm going to say million, but it's probably billion. Figure that out. Or figure it out. That means $400 to every American man, woman, and child. And we haven't paid the debt yet. We are paying it. Our children will pay it. And our children's children probably will still be paying the cost of that war. The normal profits of a business concern in the United States are 6, 8, 10, and sometimes 12%. But wartime profits, ah, that is another matter. 20, 60, 100, 300, and even 1,800%. The sky is the limit. All that traffic will bear. Uncle Sam has the money. Let's get it. Of course, it isn't put that crudely in wartime. It is dressed in the speeches about patriotism, love of country, and, quote, we must all put our shoulders to the wheel, end quote. But the profits jump and leap and skyrocket and are safely pocketed. Let's just take a few examples. Take our friends, the DuPonts, the powder people. Didn't one of them testify before a Senate committee recently that their powder won the war? or save the world for democracy, or something? How did they do in the war? They were a patriotic corporation. Well, the average earnings of the DuPonts for the period 1910 to 1914 was, looks like, 6 million in average yearly profit during the war years, 1914 to 1918. $58 million a year profit we find. Nearly 10 times that of normal times, and the profits of normal times were pretty good, an increase in profits of more than 950%. Take one of our little steel companies that patriotically shunted aside the making of rails and girders and bridges to manufacture war materials. Well, their 1910-1914 yearly earnings averaged $6 million. Then came the war, and like loyal citizens, Bethlehem Steel promptly turned to munitions making. Did their profits jump, or did they let Uncle Sam in for a bargain? Well, their 1914 to 1918 average was $49 million a year. <laughs> or let's take United States Steel. The normal earnings during the five-year period prior to the war were $105 billion a year. Not bad. Then along came the war, and, end, and up went the profits. The yearly average profit for the period of 1914 to 1918 was 240 million, not bad. There you have some of the steel and powder, powder earnings. Let's look at something else, a little copper perhaps, that always does well in wartime. Anaconda, for instance, average yearly earnings, dur earnings during the pre-war years, 1910 to 1914, of 10 million. During the war years, 1914 to 19, profits, uh, 1918, profits leaped up to 34 million per year. Or Utah copper, Average of $5 million per year during the 1910 to 1914 period jumped to an average of $21 million yearly profits for the war period. Let's group these five with, with, small, I'm sorry, with three smaller companies. The total yearly average profits of the pre-war period, 1910 to 1914, were $137,480,000. Then along came the war, the average year profits for this group skyrocketed to 408300000 I mean, million, sorry. A little increase in profits of approximately 200%. <laughs> Does war pay? It paid then. But they aren't the only ones, and there are still others. Let's take leather. For the three years of the war, the, uh, before the war, the total profits of Central Leather Company were 3500000 That was approximately... 1670000 a year. Well, in 1916, Central Leather returned a profit of $15 million, a small increase of 1,001%. <laughs> small increase. That's all. The General Chemical Company averaged a profit for the three years before the war of a little over 800000 a year. Came the war, and the profits, profits jumped to $12 million, a leap of 1,004%. 1,004%.
International Nickel Company, and you can't have a war without nickel, showed an increase in profits from a mere average of $4 million a year to $73 million a year. Not bad, an increase of more than 1,700%. American Sugar Refining Company averaged $2 million a year for the three years before the war. In 1916, a profit of $6 million was recorded. Listen to the Senate document number 259, the 65th Congress, reporting on corporate earnings and government revenues. Considering the profits of 122 meat packers, 153 cotton manufacturers, and 299 garment makers, 49 steel plants, and 340 coal producers during the war, profits under 25% were exceptional. For instance, the coal companies made between 100% and 7,856% on their capital stock during the war. The Chicago Packers doubled and tripled their earnings. And let us not forget the bankers who financed the Great War. If anyone had the cream of the profits, it was the bankers. Being partnerships rather than incorporated organizations, they do not have to report to stockholders, and their profits were as secret as they were immense. How the bankers made their millions and their billions, I do not know, because those little secrets never became public, even before a Senate investigatory body. But here's how some of the other patriotic industrialists and speculators chiseled their way into war profits. Take the shoe people. They like war. It brings business with abnormal profits. They made huge profits on sale aboard to our allies, abroad to our allies, perhaps like the munitions manufacturers and armament makers. They also sold to the enemy, for a dollar is a dollar, whether it comes from Germany or from France. But they did well by Uncle Sam, too. For instance, they sold Uncle Sam 350 million pairs of hobnailed service shoes. There were 4 million soldiers, 8 pairs and more to a soldier. Or, and more to a soldier. My regiment during the war had only one pair to a soldier. Some of these shoes probably are still in existence. They were good shoes. But when the war was over, Uncle Sam had a matter of 25 million pairs left over, bought and paid for, profits recorded and pocketed. There was still lots of leather left, so the people sold your Uncle Sam hundreds of thousands of McClellan saddles for the cavalry. But there wasn't any American cavalry overseas. Somebody had to get rid of this leather, however. Somebody had to make a profit in it. So we had a lot of McClellan saddles, and we probably have those still. Also, somebody had a lot of mosquito netting. They sold your Uncle Sam 20 million mosquito nets for the use of soldiers overseas. I suppose the boys were expecting to put it over them as they tried to sleep in muddy trenches. One, one hand scratching cooties and the other on their backs and the other making passes out scurrying rats. I'm sorry, making passes at scurrying rats. Well, not one of these mosquito nets ever got to France. Anyhow... Though these thoughtful manufacturers wanted to make sure that no soldier would be without his mosquito net, so 40 million additional yards of mosquito netting were sold to Uncle Sam. There was pretty good profit to mosquito netting in those days, even if there was no mosquitoes in France. I suppose if the war had lasted just a little longer, the enterprising mosquito netting manufacturers would have sold your Uncle Sam a couple of consignments of mosquitoes to plant in France so that more mosquito netting would be in order. I've got to pause here for a second. Has anybody ever heard the word Halliburton? This all sounds like Halliburton. Let's just sell them stuff they don't need, mark it up, and after all, we still get our money, and we don't even care what happens to it after that. Anyway, I'm coming back. Airplane and engine manufacturers felt they, too, should get their profits out of this war. Why not? Everybody else was getting theirs. So $1 billion, count them in if you live long enough, was spent by Uncle Sam in building airplane engines that never left the ground. Not one plane or motor out of the billion dollars worth ordered ever got into a battle in France. Just the same manufacturers made their little profit of 30, 100, or perhaps 300 percent. Undershirts for soldiers cost 14 cents to make, and, to make, and Uncle Sam paid 30 cents to 40 cents each for them. A nice little profit for the undershirt manufacturer and the stocking manufacturers, and the uniform manufacturers, and the cat manufacturers, and the steel helmet manufacturers all got theirs. Why, when the war was over, some 4,000,000 sets of equipment, knapsacks, and the things that go to fill them crammed warehouses on this side. Now they are being scrapped because the regulations have changed the content, but the manufacturers collected their wartime profits on them, and they will do it all over again the next time. There were lots of brilliant ideas for profit-making during the war. 
One very versatile patriot sold Uncle Sam 12 dozen 48-inch wrenches. Oh, they were very nice wrenches. The only trouble was that there was only one nut ever made that was large enough for these wrenches, and that is the one that holds turbines at Niagara Falls. Oh, man. Well, after Uncle Sam had bought them and the manufacturer had pocketed the profit, the wrenches were put on, the wrenches were put on freight cars and shunted all around the United States in an effort to find a use for them. Oh, man. When the armistice was signed, it, indeed, it was indeed a sad blow to the wrench manufacturer. He was just about to make some nuts to fit the wrenches. Then he planned to sell these, too, to your Uncle Sam. Still another had that brilliant idea that colonels shouldn't ride in automobiles, nor should they even ride on horseback. One has probably seen a picture of Andy Jackson riding in a buckboard. Well, some 6,000 buckboards were sold to Uncle Sam for the use of colonels. Not one of them was used. But the buckboard, buckboard manufacturer got his war profit. The shipbuilders felt they should come in on some, on some of it, too. They built a lot of ships that made a lot of profit, more than $3 billion worth. Some of the ships were all right, but $650, billion worth, uh, $650 billion worth of them were made of wood and wouldn't float. The seams opened up, and they sank. We paid for them, though, and somebody pocketed the profits. It has been estimated by st uh, static, uh, basically st statisticians, <laughs> never heard that word before, and, econ and economists and researchers that the war cost your Uncle Sam $52 billion. Uh, $52 billion. Of this sum, $39 billion was expended in the actual war itself. This expenditure yielded $16 billion in profits. That is how the 21,000 billionaires and millionaires got their way. This 16,000 or sorry, $16 billion in profits is not to be sneezed at. It is quite a tidy sum, and it went to very few. The Senate, Nye, Committee, probe of the munitions industry and its wartime profit, despite its sensational disclosures, hardly has scratched the surface. Even so, it has had some effect. The State Department has been studying, quote, for some time, methods of keeping out of war, the War Department suddenly decides it is a wonderful plan to spring. The administration names a committee with the War and Navy Departments ably represented under the chairmanship of a Wall Street speculator to limit profits in wartime. To what extent isn't suggested? Hmm. Possibly the profits of 300 and 600 and 1,600 percent of those who turned blood into gold in the World War would be limited to some smaller figure. Oh, man. This guy is just hitting it home. I wish he was still around. Apparently, however, the plan does not call for any limitations of losses, that is, the losses of those who fight the war. As far as I've been able to ascertain there, is nothing in the scheme to limit a soldier in the loss of but one eye or one arm or to limit his wounds to one or two or three or to limit the loss of life. There is nothing in, his scheme, in this scheme, apparently, that says not more than 12% of a regiment shall be wounded in battle or that not more than 7% in a division shall be killed. Of course, the committees cannot be bothered with such trifling matters. That's the end of uh, Chapter 2, and I'm going to bring back on my panelists to comment on this chapter. Uh, Chidi, what did you have? Um, yeah, that was amazing. Uh, it, it really reminds me of when Jacques says, you know, if war was real, we would conscript all the manufacturers and and what he's saying, I mean, I've never really heard all that about World War One. We hear it about World War Two more so, but obviously it goes to ridiculous lengths. But what would be more interesting to me would um, <clears throat> would be to see the political backgrounds of the primary stockholders and chairmen uh, of those corporations that were making these just ridiculous profits, whether it be from leather or shoes or whatever. You know, I would just wonder, you know, if their uh, political careers in that as well. Yeah, that would definitely be interesting. Um, I'd be curious to see that myself. Uh, now, uh, having heard all this thunder, what was your comment? I, I'm astounded. I, I, I've literally been sitting here shaking my head as you've been reading in, in utter disbelief. Uh, I mean, especially the wrench thing. It's like, oh, my Lord. <laughs> um. But I also wanted to point something out to the listeners that, that uh, I think they need to pay attention to is all these big numbers that you were throwing out there, these millions and billions, 
This is back in, in the 1910, 1914. That was a lot of damn money back then. I mean, we're talking about a time when a, you could get a brand new car for a few hundred dollars and a brand new house for just a few thousand. I mean, that's a lot of money. And that's why it's all that stuff's all calculated in trillions nowadays for us. Um, I mean, when you think about it, there's still, I mean, billion gets used a lot. Million almost never gets used in the terms of how much we've spent on anything involved in war. Um, you know, unless you're talking about like individual fighter planes, I think the F-14 was like a, a million dollars or something for each plane. You know, that's just, yeah, it's, it's pretty nuts. Not to mention all the, the, the projects that we pay for that don't even work. Um, you know, that never really did the things that they were supposed to do. Did you yeah, have a comment, Chibi? It's mind-numbing. Um, Sorry, Chibi, well, go ahead. Yeah. I, sort of rolling back on what I was thinking about what I said, I, I guess the reason why, it's, I mean, anybody expects there to be profit in war in just this passive sense where, oh, that's not corruption, it's just oh, it's common sense, there's going to be more production. But the reason I would be more interested is because, I mean, yeah, you're going to increase the amount of things. You're going to have to produce more weapons and all these things for, for the war. But all the things you were listing off were just accessory and just over the top, and yet there doesn't seem to be anybody liable for who made the decision to spend you know, all these extra millions and all this, or billions, on all this useless material that never gets used and some of the time doesn't work. Um, there has to be some sort of lobbying or something going on in the background. Somebody who's slipping money saying, you know, yeah, okay, buy a bunch of these. I, I mean, and it, oh, yeah, it won't look that like that big of a deal. Of course, people need shoes and people need uh, mosquito nets and wrenches. And if, if nobody really looked at the detail, it wouldn't look like obvious corruption. But when you really think about it, it is. And there has to be something behind the scenes that, that would convince them to, to squander that much money. Well, I certainly agree with that, and I think that the fact, you know, it's like we're all sitting or shaking our heads and stuff, you know, as if that was, like, new. That's the funny thing, and, uh, and it's not new. You know, it's, it's basically just the same stuff over and over again, you know, and basically it, the, the fact that this has been going on as long as it has and the fact that nobody's ever really done anything about it, um, you know, it just that, in fact, it's kind of come to be expected at this point. I mean, it's not even unusual. You know, what would be unusual is if we finally had somebody, you know, complaining about it. I mean, I think, you know, like if you remember the documentary, Why We Fight, uh, they covered that quite a bit, you know, just in the fact that, um, you know, you had, uh, basically you had people, um, you know, who were making so much money and it was, uh, it was, Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, who coined the phrase military-industrial complex. And when you watch Why We Fight, it talks about the fact that um, essentially, you know, basically these people, um, you know, would, you know, were trying to get, to get programs passed by uh, President Eisenhower. And because he was a general before he was a president, it was very obvious to him, you know, what they were up to, and, you know, they couldn't pull a fast one on him because he was so familiar, you know, with, with war, you know, especially at the time. And that's why he put in his farewell speech, we need to be careful about any undue influence by the military-industrial complex. You know, um, but basically, yeah, I'm, you know, one of the things about reading this book is not only does he put it, he, he pulls no punches, you know, he, he goes straight to the throat, and I think that, um, you know, it, it's definitely a matter, at least from my perspective, where I hope that people will really, really get down to the nitty-gritty of all of these wars that we're in. And it's one of the reasons why I can't even really uh, take sides in any form of war. Uh, I can't even, you know, it's like I remember, like, you know, just it, I look at everything now and it's all victims. It's all about the people you're talking about who are, you know, who, the, those are the bad guys, the ones who are whispering in the ears, making these, war happen, these wars happen. My opponent, Candace Miller, you know, taking hundreds of thousands of dollars from individual employees in Halliburton and then therefore never voting to get out of Iraq. You know, it, that sort of stuff to me, I think this is one of the major reasons why we can never have a constitutional republic that's actually going to function in a monetary system. As long as there's the, you know, as long as it is legal to bribe politicians with political contributions, you're never going to get out of this. 
these people will always have more money than the common citizen who's trying to donate to some politician's campaign. I think we proved that, honestly. I mean, we did a lot for, um, you know, we did a lot for Ron Paul. You know, we got him a lot of money bombs and all that, but he still came up with a tiny amount of the vote for all of the effort we put in. And we put a lot of effort in. We really did. And I, you know, I look at it, and we, we did get one thing out of it in the fact that now exposing the Federal Reserve is a mainstream issue. It's, not, it's no longer a small issue. It's no longer a conspiracy theorist issue. Everybody wants to audit the Fed. But other than that, that was the most we managed to squeak out. So it is a benefit. But as far as getting anybody elected, you know, that's basically, I don't think, is ever going to happen in our lifetime. I don't think you're going to see any, any good politicians come out of that. I mean, look at the fact that even the people who get elected themselves to these high offices, you know, how many poor people have you seen elected? I mean, just like looking at the houses of the candidates, you can almost always tell the ones who are poor do the least. You know, if you've ever seen, like, John Edwards, Democrat, huge mansion, okay, uh, law practice, you know, he was big in that. Obama, corporate lawyer, okay, uh, Hillary Clinton, the Clintons have all kinds of money. You know, these are the kinds of people who end up moving and shaking the world, and that's one of the reasons why I don't think that any amount of, you know, any amount of capitalism is going to fix this problem. I don't see free market capitalism making this any better either. Um, so now we've, uh, we're down to about, see, 13 minutes. If anybody would like to call in, um, I plan to do more of this book on tomorrow's show. Uh, my call-in number is, let me find it, 347-945-7747. If you're interested in calling in, go ahead and call in on that number, and I will bring you into the show and into the conversation. Um, now, you were basically, it's unfortunate, Thunder, you had to leave the last show because you had some kind of family emergency. Um, yeah. but, I you know, but I think that uh, this book and the last book that we were reading kind of go hand in hand, and I can see, you know, largely, I mean, we're dealing with a guy who was there in the trenches, you know, and he, in, in Addicted to War, they quote the parts of this where they describe all the various campaigns he was involved in. We'll be getting into that in the next show for sure. Um, now, I've got to say, I mean, looking, you know, you said that your, you know, you said your grandfather was in the Korean War, and something about that book in particular struck you. You want to, you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Actually, it was my father who was in the Korean War. Oh, okay. Um, my grandfather was in World War II, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I really never got much of a chance to talk to my father about. I know he didn't. He wasn't on the ground with a gun in his hand. I can't remember exactly, to be honest, uh, what you know. He was more in a passive role uh, in the military, and he was in the Navy. Um, so, but he still was a war veteran, you know, and um, got the benefits, you know, reaped the benefits of that, which all veterans uh, have benefits. I just think the the benefits are pale in comparison to the detriments. Uh, that our war veterans suffer um, and continue to suffer. Um, and another thing I wanted to bring up real quick, you were when you when you mentioned the term to coin a phrase. There's another phrase that you don't hear very much anymore, and I don't um, I don't know if uh, you guys remember this. Maybe this was said one of those cliches that was said a while back. But uh, do you remember that that cliche that said uh, war is good for the economy? You know yeah. the economy, yeah. They don't say that much anymore, do they? Because uh, living here in, in, in the United States, that, that really doesn't apply anymore, does it? <laughs> right. Well, that's kind of what I was getting at earlier. It, it is actually, well, back then at least, it seemed like it was good for the economy. It does give it a boost. And everybody's trying to get their piece of the pie. What they leave out of that is, oh, by the way, this is all borrowed money from the Fed, of course. And right. where does that debt go? end up going back on? I mean, you have plenty of businesses that get rich off of it, and then uh, taxes go up, inflation goes up, and, you know, the poor man goes down. So yeah. I don't talk about that. It, it takes a while for, it, for that to take effect, but, it, yeah. Well, so you know, did you uh, ever finish watching a documentary, Militainment, TV? Yeah, actually I did, although... Uh, 
I don't remember all of it. <clears throat> but yeah, I actually that if we're trying to burn time because I have a relevant story, because um, that reminded me of you know probably a lot of people in my generation they think first thing out of high school hmm, what to do well if I don't have a college uh, you know any way to go to college guess I'll go to the military and that's uh, it's so common you know even the people who don't do it it seems like almost everybody considers it at some point if they aren't already lined up for something else as far as college goes. <coughs> Well, um, you know, my cousin, um, who I grew up very close to, kind of like a brother, he, he ended up going in the military, and he was a really pacifist kind of guy, when, you know, when we were growing up, and, you know, he, he's been to Iraq now for a few years on and off, and um, more recently, I, you know, seen him again, and came back for like a week, and he was disappointed, and over dinner, we were having a conversation, and just laughingly, you know, said something about how disappointed he was he didn't get to kill anybody. Well, I actually asked him, I was like, did, did you, you know, I was curious, did, did you shot anyone? He goes, no, unfortunately, you know, and he kind of giggled, and I was like, wait, are you serious? He's like, yeah, those fucking, you know, you know, he just started going off about it, and I was like, wow, you know, he just completely flipped. The way the culture just, I, I couldn't even talk to him anymore from that point, and the last time I spoke to him since then, uh, once again got into the discussion about the military, and he ends up just saying, well, you're just a loser. What are you doing with your life? And I'm like, well, I'm not out killing people. What, I mean, what kind of, you know, <laughs> it's such a silly, uh, but right. that's really the attitude. I'm not saying that's all military, but it right. really, to me, showed how much it changes you and just thinking like, wow, I'm glad I, I'm glad I didn't go in. That was like ad hominem in all capital letters, too, you know. He's a, he wants to be a murderer, but you're a loser because you're not doing anything with your life financially. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and I think I, I think it's fair to say that there are some people in the military that are doing good things. Oh um, no, that's it, very true. Very and, true. And 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 I just had a snap on the memory of my grandfather and what he did in the military. He was a firefighter uh, mm -hmm. in the Navy, and ironically enough, my father uh, was 10 years old on December 7th, 1941, playing out in the yard when the Zeros flew overhead. Wow. Uh, and, my, and my grandfather actually fought the fires at Hickam Field. So that's where they were at on December 7th. That, was, that always fascinated me. I, I always loved hearing my dad tell me that story about watching the planes fly, fly over and not having a clue what was going on. Yep. You know, and this is one of the reasons why Jock Fresco says that people should, you know, that if we were going to have wars, then everybody gets conscripted, and that way nobody profits from war. All production of all war items becomes nationalized just because that way nobody's profiting from war. You know, I don't really think that that's really what he expects to ever happen because he'd probably rather, you know, if he had any that much authority, he would just say we don't have war in the first place. Right. But it basically really heavily goes into the fact that um, that basically when you, there's so much of this that's being egged on by the monetary system and the profit motive and how much money's being made. And this book is revealing that that's been the way it is, you know, all along. And, you know, I, I hear Chibi keying up. What's up? Oh, I was just going to comment on that. I, I get exactly it. I, I see it as his sense of humor almost that it's basically like, okay, let's grant this proposition. Yeah, freedom, liberty, that's what we're fighting for. Okay, sure, fine, let's do that. Then, I mean, he, he doesn't believe in war, um, but that's, I think, where he's coming from with that comment is let's pretend for a minute that it is real. Well, if it is, what, where does profit come into that? That has nothing to do with liberty and freedom. So, it, I mean, it, to me, it's clear as day when he says that, and I, I kind of look at it as part of his sense of humor, sort of. No, I definitely agree with that, and um, it just, it also, you know, it actually, it brings to mind something I was thinking about one day when I was watching one of my uh, um, films about about Iraq, and like all the different, you know, cap, you know, pics of George Bush doing his thing, and, you know, then I was remembering the movie 300, and how in 300, uh, essentially, you know, even historically, uh, King Leonidas, was concerned about the future of his country. His country had laws that prevented him from going to war, so he went out on his own, basically with a small group of soldiers, for the sake of defending his country. You know, can you imagine now, 
you know, that if, if we ever had a situation where presidents were actually expected to go out and fight beside their soldiers, you know, if, if our leaders were expected to go out and fight beside the soldiers, you know, that's, that's never going to happen in our lifetime. But when you think about it, it definitely kept things in a very different perspective. He was doing what he was doing because he wanted to protect Sparta, you know, and basically um, you're not going to see that kind of integrity from any of our leaders. Right. Yeah, I didn't so much like that movie, but I remember reading about that story way before the movie came out. And I thought, wow, that, that's pretty amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm a pacifist, but I, I would still have to say, if you're going to do it, at least, you know, be for real about it, you know. It's well, yeah, and then, you know, let's not... I remember one of the things that came up during the movie uh, that I was watching, Independence Day, and it occurred to me one day, and I, I said this once in a sci-fi chat room, and people really laughed hard about it, was that the movie Independence Day, the most unrealistic thing about Independence Day was actually not the aliens, it was not the big spaceships, it was not the absurd maneuvers that they were pulling off in fighter jets and all that other stuff, and it wasn't the guy, you know, at the end, you know, coming through and, you know, blowing up the ship. None of that was the most unrealistic thing. The most unrealistic thing about Independence Day was that we will ever have a president with that much integrity. <laughs> the president was more unbelievable to me than the aliens. Yeah. You know, or skill. That's a very good point. Good-natured people like that just don't get elected. You know, we've seen that. And right. that's never going to change. Because the people, in, uh, the people on top like being on top. And if there were presidents like that, we, you know, those people on top wouldn't be on top. You know? and that's, that's right. And that's why I was going to interject when you guys ahead. are talking about you know, these wars not being for freedom. Well, guess what? They kind of are just not the freedom that we think. It's all about financial freedom for the upper 1%. <laughs> yep. Oh, people arguably defend that, too. You know, stay away well, from my financial freedom. Let's deregulate absolutely everything. It should be absolutely my right to exploit workers in the three world and you know, th third world, and you know, kill them and work them to death and you know, whatever. That's that's fine. You know, what, you're not it's, you're not in a position to tell me what to do. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a, a system that is you know, that's why when people are are scared of our system, I, I usually kind of laugh at them, particularly since the ones are usually the most afraid of us, like the communists and the socialists don't agree with us, but they don't generally think we're evil. Uh, the capitalists tend to think that we're evil, but they tend to think everything is not them is evil. But in any case, um, you know, when you're dealing with them, you know, it's, they, they claim that there is no evil in their thinking, that everything would be great if everybody had all this freedom. And then these are the same people who justify it, and these are the same people who yell at you for ever talking about the environment. These are the same people who don't want to hear it if, you know, companies like Walmart are doing bad things. You know, they, they defend the rights of these people to do these things. And it, it always ends up coming down in the end to a discussion about um, that the strong should, you know, have, the strong have earned their position as, you know, as being strong and therefore will rule over the weak. And that is tyranny. That is evil to me. That is scarier to me than anything any of the other tyrants of this century have ever said. And it's I totally agree. not true either, because look at the people who are the top one percent. They, are they athletes? Are they? Yeah. Are they incredibly intelligent? Are they? I mean, what? You know. You well, know, remember, in a monetary system, they are stronger. I mean, Bill Gates is an extremely strong person. I'm pretty sure I could take him in a one-on-one -on -one fight, but. <laughs> but yeah, I'm just point. saying. Given yeah. the premise, the strong should rule. Well, what's so strong about you? You know, just because. I mean, most of this is well passed down. I mean, Bill Gates. Not quite, but a lot of the more wealthy people, it's something that's been passed down from generation to generation. Well, you're right, and we're now down to the last 60 seconds of our show. Um, thank you all for tuning in to V Radio. Um, thank you, Thunder, and uh, thank you, Chibi, for coming on today. I hope you guys have enjoyed today's show. Uh, it will be archived and available at vradio.org. You will be able to get the link anyway to the archives. Sadly, that website's pretty primitive, so I don't have direct links yet that just take you straight to the archives. But uh, that's v-radio.org. Um, please consider a donation to V Radio to keep us on the air. And uh, check out the Boston Tea Party at bostontea.us and join the Resource-Based Economy Caucus. Thank you very much. and. Uh, Thanks again for tuning in to V-Radio.
Go ahead and say goodbye, guys. Bye. Bye, everybody. Thanks for having us on. Yep. All right. Um, thanks to you know, everybody who was on, and um, I'm going to say something I said once long ago. Turn off American Idol and turn on, C- turn on C-SPAN, you freaking slaves. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good day. <laughs>